Hello everyone and welcome to the Wealth Tech Show. I'm Ian Horn, your host for this series and producer of CityWire's Wealth Tech weekly newsletter. Now before I get into today's interview, I want to say a quick word about the newsletter, which we put out each week to cover the big issues in investment and personal finance tech. Now, if you're not signed up for the newsletter, do it now. The URL to head to is citywire.com forward slash new model advisor with hyphens forward slash wealth tech without hyphens. So anyway, I'm delighted to welcome our first return guest to the Wealth Tech Show. It's Roger Cameras. And Roger, no one's no one's going to remember that URL, are they? No, I'm sure they won't. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll repeat it at the end, yeah. but um, we'll move on. Anyway, look, Roger, for those who missed our, our last podcast, which you can still listen to online, um, I'm bringing you back because you're a director at CIO Net, which helps senior Correct. IT professionals network with their peers and, and sharpen their skills as digital pioneers, which is very cool. Uh, and also, the bit that I can't overlook, of course, is that you were part of the team at at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, probably better known as MIT, which des- which built the ARPANET and helped design the internet as we know it today. So, Roger, I'm I'm going to ask a big question to start. Mm-hmm. I know we've discussed this before. I know this isn't necessarily your your area, but seeing as you were involved since you know day dot on the internet, I want to know what you make of the UK government's recent announcements about NFTs. And uh, using stable coins in the UK becoming a global hub for crypto asset innovation. So I'm going to, before asking you any direct questions, bullet point a few things. So stable coins are to be brought within regulation to pave the way for use in the UK as a recognized form of payment. A financial market infrastructure sandbox is to be legislated for. It includes an FCA-led crypto sprint an engagement group to work more closely with the industry. And the Royal Mint, believe it or not, is working on, is to work on producing an NFT. Who thought? Um, and the government will explore ways of enhancing the competitiveness of the UK tax system to encourage further development of the crypto asset market. And Rishi Sunak has said, it's my ambition to make the UK a global hub for crypto asset technology. And the measures we've outlined today will help to ensure firms can invest, innovate and scale up in this country. Roger, what do you make of that? Wow. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot to take in, but I am so excited by this. Uh, you know, Post-Brexit, what is the future of the UK? Um, I think we could be a global digital hub in all respects, not just in currency and uh, uh, an exchange, but in every possible uh, effect. And what's at the very heart of digital? It's digital assets. Uh, and our ability, firstly, to trade them, uh, but then to store them, to to value them uh, through NFTs, is a tremendous step forward for this country. Uh, it's the best thing I've heard in many years. Uh, and I know one of my sons, for example, works for Checkout. Uh, they are leaders in crypto payments. So we uh, and they're a British-based company. Uh, one of the leaders in the world now. So we are really making our mark already in crypto, uh, but this just really seals the deal. This puts uh, uh, you know, uh, acceleration stripes right the way through the machine. So do you see this as a, a kind of call to be long-term in how we think? Because NFTs have been in the press lately for fairly bad reasons. <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, daily trading volumes on OpenSea, which is the biggest marketplace for NFTs, dropped 80% in March, uh, down from the figures reached in February. I've got more on this. I've actually got loads of stuff on this. Um, the average selling price of an NFT was roughly $2,500 in November. That dropped by almost 50% in March. 
And, uh, you know, here's a great quote which I saw from the FT. So props to them for this quote from Nadia Ivanova, Chief Operating Officer at Latelier, which is a, a trend forecasting unit of BMP Paribas. She said at the end of last year, there was a general sense that there was saturation in certain parts of the market, particularly in primate-themed profile pictures, which is a particularly great quote. Do you, do you think we need to... Well, what's your view on that? Obviously, there's been some short-term problems there with NFTs. Do you think that's an existential threat to them or no? Uh, so Bill Gates said uh, the problem with new technologies is we overestimate them in the short term. We underestimate them in the long term. And I think that crypto, blockchain, NFT, this is the heart of the digital economy. Uh, is it going to happen tomorrow morning? No. Uh, but big investors are putting more of their wealth into crypto uh, and uh uh, and, and digital assets. So I think the, the, the movement has started. Uh, like everything else, we've massively overrated uh, these uh, startups, um, but I would put my money on it. Uh, in a five to 10 year context, I think we would win hands down. And again, if you just look at blockchain and Ethereum, the volatility of these currencies has been extraordinary. And yet, there's absolute certainty that they are going to survive and be potentially dominant on the world world surface. Uh, the, the other really important point here is is the, the meaning of the city of London. So you know it was a physical space, and people like to be resident uh, in, the, in in a physical space. Uh, today, it the brand has to change. The brand has to become digital. Uh, and I think, again, this move to a uh, crypto center, uh, NFT center, brings us to a, a genuinely new digital brand for the city of London. It's a terrific move, uh, more important than adding a few factories up north, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting take, and I wonder if the level up the north people might be... Well, I wonder what they'll make of that. Um, anyway, uh, I, I can see your point, though. I, I think there's, there's going to be some bad storylines, aren't there? There's going to be some bad things happening when it comes to the immediate future. And you, you can easily make fun of these things, too. I mean, I know that we were talking about getting, you know, the UK's been talking about getting in at the ground level on on crypto, and yet we're a year behind Taco Bell on launching an NFT. It's... <laughs> It's things like that, I guess. But it's easy to mock, isn't it? Well, again, if I go back 20 years, I did some work for the RSA, Royals, uh, the um, insurance company, and we were looking at new businesses. And at that, even at that time, we recognized that the most valuable assets we have are not our television sets and our, our home furniture. It's actually our photo memories, which are all today digital, all the information, all the documentation we produce in our lives. Uh, we are getting to the point now where we need to be able to uh, ensure and secure uh, a vast proportion of our lives. I mean, we are essentially documenting our lives as we go along. Where does that go? Well, that goes into the cloud. Who's going to secure it? Who's going to manage it? Uh, who's going to store it? I, I think these are really interesting questions. And as I, I said what, recently, I don't mind if my house burns down or lose a bit of furniture, but I would be—I would die if all my digital memories were uh, were ex extinguished. That's actually very relevant to one of our recent podcasts where we explored death tech and digital legacies and the things that you can do to secure mm. 
what happens after you pass away. Very, very interesting. Um, look, I, I could talk about the government's plans a lot longer, but what we're really here to talk about today, Roger, is, is your recent publication, Reinvesting Capitalism. Oh, sorry, reinvent, Reinventing Capitalism, isn't it? Not it Reinvesting, is, it that is makes indeed. no sense. Reinventing Capitalism, a Radical Manifesto for the Digital Age. So let's start with this paper. You, you've kind of detailed the evolution of our working lives and as we enter an age of NFTs, cryptocurrencies, drones, sensors, virtual reality, and Web3, you, you describe this as taking us beyond hyper-connectivity and towards hyper-personalization. So, Roger, can you outline what's going on and, and what it means for the future of our working lives? Thanks very much, Ian. Uh, a topic uh, deeply meaningful, as you say, having uh, started with the ARPANET and the Internet, you have to ask yourself, where is all this going? Um, the nature of business is already changing, particularly with digital natives coming on the scene, uh, challenging traditional structures. Uh, but I think we've only just started. And the most interesting part of that has been the concentration of personal data amongst a handful of organizations, Apple, Microsoft, uh, Google, Facebook. Uh, these guys today have pretty much monopolized our personal lives. And I don't think that's right. <laughs> and I don't think it's sustainable. Uh, and I do think that uh, Web 3.0 decentralization uh, will actually encourage us to store and use our own personal data uh, at a local level. It's going to pull away those big monolithic uh, players and bring this back to the community. And in this paper, actually, I, I talk about the, um, the way in which big corporations are already breaking up. Uh, they're returning to their core activities. They're divesting all their non-core. But I'm taking this a whole step further, and I think uh, this pandemic and the move to hybrid working, et cetera, uh, uh, emphasizes uh, we want to take possession of our own personal assets, our own intellectual property. Uh, not leave that to Facebook, not leave that to Google, thank you very much, although they can be useful. Uh, we want to bring that all back. So I'm actually thinking about a world of digital villages. Uh, they'll be virtual, uh, but in some ways they could actually be physical. I actually start to envisage uh, populations living in large high-rise buildings in the center of London where they will form a community. They'll live there, they'll work there, they'll socialize there, uh, and probably they'll grow their own food there. <laughs> uh, this will be a village again, and that's what human beings actually want. Uh, I think over the industrialization of the world, we've uh, essentially uh, dehumanized ourselves. If you walk into a major store today, how, how much of a personal feeling do you get? Well, uh, <laughs> not much. No, absolutely uh, not. Whereas if you live in a little village and you have the butcher, the baker, etc., down the way, they know you well. Uh, they are highly, uh, work on a highly personalized basis. I think we're going back to this. But what's really intriguing is the concept of the digital artisan. So villages were essentially populated with artisans who'd set about doing all the sort of necessary work to sustain life. Um, I think today in a digital economy, we'll have digital artisans who will be able to um, process information, they'll be able to manage um, complex algorithms, uh, artificial intelligence, all the things that will actually refer to the digital domain in our lives rather than the physical domain. 
And I would take a guess that within 10 years, that digital domain will be worth at least 50 to 60% of our personal assets. And those digital artisans will be hard at work <laughs> to earn their money from just essentially managing information on our behalf. And I don't mean Facebook. I mean people in our building, in our virtual village. People have got a real personal relationship with me as a consumer, as an individual. I think it's this terrific uh, conception of the future that says we can return to village life, but with a difference. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you think there's a degree of, of rose-tinted specs with that, expecting technology to go back to serving innate human needs, if we can call them that? Well, I think one of the problems today is the lack of craftsmanship. I mean, the UK particularly has been known for its craftsmanship. We have over 100 guilds that represent craftsmen. Uh, that's all essentially disappeared in the industrial age. Uh, everything went to machines, to factories, uh, to automation. We want to get that back. And I actually think, again, we talk about the Great Resignation, that people don't really want to work in big offices behind screens all day answering email. That's not what we were invented for. Machines can do that. Uh, robotic process automation can do that. AI can do that. We want to get back to being genuine craftsmen. And I think the digital artisan will be the new modern-day craftsman. I think a lot of people in this country and elsewhere are going to uh, ditch their boring office jobs and go back to being genuine craftsmen. And if you don't believe me, look at what people do in their spare time. It's unbelievable how people today are using internet-based forums to uh, communicate with people all over the world about their passions, about their interests. Uh, it really brings this personalization to the individual. Mm -hmm. And do you think that people will need to reskill to a serious degree to be able to achieve this? Or, or will it be made easier through things like you know, lower no-code software, things like that? How, how do you think this is going to work? Uh, both, actually. I, I think there's a terrific need for education. Uh, again, I sort of proposed in my article that the gills <laughs> will resurface. They'll become the primary platform for education in the future. And we may not have 100 gills. We may have 1,000 or even 10,000 because there will be such a diversity uh, of craftsmanship in this <laughs> digital world. Uh, so, yes, that education is critically important. But, again, it's online. We don't need to build more schools. Uh, so much of this will become accessible uh, self-teaching, YouTube. YouTube is a fantastic resource, by the way. Uh, but on the other side, you're absolutely right. The new tooling, uh, low-code and no-code particularly, gives anyone the chance to uh, write programs, to build applications, uh, to configure what they want to do, whether it's a website or it's payment process or anything else. Uh, they can do it. Uh, and I think in the next few years, the generation that's emerging uh, into the workplace today is very familiar with these tools. It's not going to be difficult for them. Yeah, and, and you're talking about, a, a, again, a, a new concept for how the economy works, for how mm. society works, actually, yes. if we think about it. If you're an entrepreneur in this scenario, mm. how do you prepare for this you know, oncoming Web3 situation? Because Web3 is not that easy to understand, is it? So. You, you, you know, anyone that's running a business is presumably no idiot, but even so, you could be very smart and still not quite understand Web3. What, what should people do? So I think the, the traditional model of startups and scale-ups goes out of the window. Uh, I think a digital artisan 
can be at least a billionaire, if not a trillionaire, are employing one person themselves because everything else is out there. Their ability to build financial, um, marketing, sales functions and capabilities on a global scale, it's all there. It's all in the cloud. So I think, actually, if you've got real talent as an individual and you can grow your talent, uh, you can profit enormously. You don't need vast investment. You don't need vast resources anymore. And it, that gets back to, actually, the, the big corporations who, even 20 years ago, I said, you're far too big. You know, why are you employing a million people or even 100,000 people? You could be employing 10 people, yeah. <laughs> and you'd still be doing the same job because there's partnerships out there, ecosystems out there that absolutely can do many of the tasks more effectively and more efficiently than you can possibly do. And I think people began to agree with me. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing is this continuous cycle of things becoming more efficient and more scalable and more yeah. personalized. And you know, just to give some context, something you point out in your in your paper is that um, you know Meta, Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft are worth more than the entire European equity market. So what you're describing is basically that scenario, but on steroids. And I think there's a really interesting aspect to that. Why are they worth more than the whole of the European stock market? Because they own our personal data. That's the real value of these guys. And if we could decentralize that ownership mm. back towards local communities, uh, local digital villages, we, we take back the value to, uh, to our own collective um, selves. Uh, and I think today the, the value is so disproportionately uh, out, uh, in favor of the big guys, the monopolists. It has to come back. And I think Web 3.0 decentralization open up the possibility that we can actually enjoy that value ourselves. And just to give you an example, uh, Thames Water rang me up recently and said, could I ask you a few questions about your usage of our water? And I said, of course you can. Uh, I'll charge you a thousand pounds per question. <laughs> uh, the phone went dead. Uh, but the point I was making there was, that's my personal data. That's the way I run my house and that's the way I run my life. Uh, that's valuable to me, and you guys want it for free. Well, sorry, you can't have it. Uh, I, I want to look for other ways of um, merchandising my data. Interesting. And uh, talk about Web3. I think that's a really interesting area to discuss because it's, it's ripe for confusion, isn't it? I mean, some things that I would point out about the metaverse in particular, the metaverse is a concept which I think is in its relative infancy, I would suspect. Um, you know, like how many metaverses can there be? Uh, will we ever have interoperability between these metaverses? So if you own something something in one metaverse, you would then own it in another one. Um, you know, uh, also which blockchains or singular blockchain will win out because these things are all based on a blockchain. I think that's a, a you know, I just want to know, how do, you, how do you think that will shake out? Well, again, there's a, a massive debate that goes on right now between open standards and open sourcing uh, and proprietary. Uh, and again, that really goes into the big corporates at the moment. You know, They are as worried about interoperability as, as I am as an individual. They're more worried right now. Mm -hmm. Believe me, they're employing multiple clouds, for example, multiple uh, s uh, software services, all of which are likely to be in, uh, inoperable um, between each other. So again, there's a whole new industry emerging on how you achieve that connectivity 
We've got AI tools. We've got a whole range of tools that actually can solve those problems. So I'm not too concerned about that. What I'm really interested in is the metaverse. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, in September, we're having a conference on the metaverse. Uh, we're inviting Facebook to provide an auditorium and all the kit to enable hundreds of people to uh, enjoy the event virtually. Yeah. Um, and that really takes me to the point also of, of how we will work in the future. I mean, I think the metaverse is fantastic for <laughs> playing games, uh, yeah. but imagine that we get to the point where we can really have immersive meetings that are remote, that we can be in two places at once. Uh, I used to use um, a telepresence, a Cisco product, when I was working between the UK and India. Uh, and it was pretty impressive as you actually felt that you were in a meeting with four or five people at the other end of the world. Uh, but imagine that in three dimensions. Uh, that is definitely going to be a, a, a technical possibility within the next few years. And I do put my uh, hats off to Facebook just to make, to, to make this happen by yeah. giving, essentially giving away the headset. Well, it's interesting that Facebook... Uh it's so invested in the metaverse. Obviously, they've had their their advert campaign around it and all of that, which I'll admit I found really cheesy. But they they you know they tried. Uh, they're, they're doing that, but at the same time, as you point out, the future economy involves taking back control of your own data, yep. and therefore, no doubt, demolishing a fair amount of value that, <laughs> that Meta has. Is that why they're trying to build the metaverse? Yeah. Again, they're trying to sustain their ability to. To, to get hold of your personal data in every shape and form, to be the point of connection between you and everyone else in the uh, in the metaverse. Uh, so it, it's absolutely necessary if they want to retain their value, grow their mm -hmm. value, that they sustain it's su succeeded this. Uh, but personally, I don't yeah. want them to succeed. <laughs> uh, I yeah. want uh, digital artisans to emerge who can do this for for me. Mm -hmm in the ways that are meaningful to me, not to half a you know, billion people out there. Uh, I want to you know, have the intimacy of my local community or my, my virtual community, and, and I want a virtual reality that supports that uh, rather than supports everyone in the world. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's coming back to this whole issue of personalization, uh, but the technology is definitely coming. Yeah, it's just interesting to me because Meta have also made a foray into cryptocurrency with Libra. Are they essentially trying to build these things before the decentralized version takes hold? Is that what's going on? Of course. And, and again, there's some fantastic implications here for uh, governments, nations. You know, what is a nation today uh, compared to the power that um, Google has, that uh, Facebook has? Uh, when, once they start to introduce their own currencies, they should be having their own embassies. I mean, uh, you would expect if you were run into trouble in Bangkok to go to the, the uh, Facebook uh, embassy <laughs> rather than the British embassy. They'll probably be more effective in bailing <laughs> you out. Oh, interesting. And, and let's go into the, the Great Resignation now, which you touched upon a second ago. Um, you know, it's an idea that's really taken hold in America yeah. in particular. And the notion is that the pandemic made people think twice about their priorities and, and the shift towards remote working no doubt played a role in this. Now, two days ago, Bloomberg published an article uh, featuring research that says the great resignation is not slowing down. A day ago, uh, you know, renowned economist Paul Krugman uh, wrote in the New York Times that the great resignation is in fact a great misunderstanding and that what we're actually seeing is a rise in self-employment and in America in particular, a decline, well, a decline in immigration. 
So what what's going on? Do you think that there is a great resignation firstly? And do you think it's um, a longer term shift or something that's just a kind of post pandemic <laughs> reflex? It's been going on for a long time. So uh, in the 90s, we did a study when I was at SRI that suggested the average uh, employment contract in Europe was 16 years. In California, it was 16 months. Uh, and we predicted by 2020 that the average employment contract in California would be 30 days. Essentially, we are in an interim you know, mode here. We're, we're not hitching our lift <laughs> to yeah. long-term employment contracts anymore. And I think that's come to Europe uh, more, more slowly, of course. Uh, but it does question uh, cradle-to-grave um, corporate uh, s protection, you know, pensions, healthcare, and all of those good things. I think people, and it gets back to that digital artisan, have just got to become much more self-sufficient. Um, the really big question is how do you trade your skills? Uh, in an environment where you will only be employed for 30 days, uh, how do you look ahead uh, for six months or a year uh, if you need money to pay your mortgage, uh, ex uh, school fees, etc.? So I think this is this is a concern. But it, it, the pandemic has absolutely woken people up. Uh, yeah. It's really interesting to see what it's meant to people to work at home to organize their lives in a fundamentally different way, not to have to commute every day for two hours or so, uh, be home, take the dog for a walk, collect the kids at school, do all of those things. And again, as more and more two parents are working uh, in their own jobs, uh, you know, sharing the domestic duties has become really important, uh, as it always was, but you know, the pandemic's actually given us a to totally different way of doing that. So I think the, the other aspect of this, uh, as we move again into this digital world, is the shortage of skills. So uh, every IT director that I ever speak to says, my biggest problem right now is finding the necessary skills to, to do all the wonderful things that you're talking about. Uh, I can't find them. They're not here. Uh, I can't easily train them. Uh, so I've got to go looking around the world for those skills, and again, pre-pandemic that was difficult post-pandemic much easier uh it's much easier to employ people who you will never meet <laughs> yeah. um because that's what's been happening in the pandemic uh i've known people who've been appointed very senior positions uh responsible for hundreds of people who they've never met <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and over two years they never meet uh so this is become it's a change in attitude change in uh, in culture that we're experiencing uh, and it gets back again to this you know, view, you can't regiment people, you can't subject them to this sort of industrial uh, tightrope uh, anymore. I think we're, we're far too individualistic today and far too creative to tolerate that. Uh, and the, the pandemic's really broken down the barriers here. A flood, a flood is taking place. Um, it's massive, very consequential actually. Um, and it will affect different countries in different ways. Um, but certainly the Anglo-Saxon world, I think, is ready for it right now. Continental mm -hmm. Europe, slowly getting there. Yeah. And <laughs> here's the thing, because we're talking about the future of work. Mm -hmm. What about the future of not working? Because, you know, the Wealth Tech Show, we talk about all sorts of concepts. And one thing I keep you know, finding is that technology obviously isn't an island, is it? There's all, it, it intersects with everything. The, you know, the, the economy, our lives, 
um, sociology, politics, it's all there. Do you think we're going to need a need to support a lot of people who won't be able to work in the in the future economy or will there be jobs for everyone how do you how do you think it's going to play out well again it really begs the question can we move from a highly industrial way of working um rule-based uh, way of working to a, a much more creative craftsman-like way of working so uh, you know even if it's someone who's passionate about tending their garden Mm -hmm. uh, building a model railway kit up in their attic. Uh, I think most people have got this in them. The question is, how do you monetize that? <laughs> yeah. um, how, do you, uh, how can you sustain your living uh, with those sort of passions that are, lie way outside working for a big corporate? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what we've got to learn and understand. But again, it's so interesting to see, uh, I have a personal trainer, uh, his passion is um, uh, modernizing or uh, uh, modernizing old uh, classic hi-fi equipment. Uh, he's put up a website. He's really a master at this. People from all over the world are sending yeah. him old amplifiers and old preamplifiers for him to uh, to, to uh, update. He gets paid for that. Uh, I get the point that eventually he'll give up personal training because he's just much more interested in doing this. And there's money in yeah. it, uh, and he can pretty much charge what he wants. So I think that's the sort of the the change that's beginning to take place. People are really looking at their passions and saying, how can we monetize those? Mm -hmm. The web is an open book here. It, it gives you a global audience for anything, anything you care to do. Yeah, and do you think that will be supplemented by some kind of universal basic income, or, or no? Always a good question. Uh, is it possible? Is it feasible? I guess it is. Um, and I don't think, I think people have got overwhelmed by the need for stuff. <laughs> I mean, we've been work, living in an industrial world where stuff is everything. You know, your car, your home, uh, your hi-fi, everything's are about my stuff. Uh, in this new world, less and less uh, of your expenditure uh, and life values will be associated with your physical stuff. It's more and more your digital stuff. Uh, and actually, digital has added a tremendous amount of value to our economy, which we don't recognize. We don't actually quantify it. The fact that I can check in to an airport, uh, a, a boarding, a boarding an airplane remotely at any time uh, saves me a lot of time myself, gives me a greater sense of certainty, etc. We don't actually value that, but it's there. It's all part of the service. So I think there's so many different uh, online learning, for example, uh, YouTube, incredible resources for education. Uh, we don't value that. We don't put us um, because we don't pay for it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think people actually receiving enormous value. Uh, there's people out in, in, uh, in London who live in the streets who have to go to um, special places to answer their emails. <laughs> I mean, these guys are dependent on email, but they're living in the streets. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all of this stuff comes, in a sense, for free right now. Uh, so I think, in a, in a way, we already have a universal income. Yeah, interesting. And another thing, we were talking about the, the future of big tech. Do you, do you think those companies will continue to dominate the landscape for the foreseeable future, or do you think we'll actually rather quickly see their Demise might be too strong a word, but certainly a pairing back of the influence that they currently have. So if I go back to a book I wrote in 2003, Atomic, I actually said the world will polarize or the economists will polarize into 
massive utility platforms uh, that, for example, Amazon, AWS, or Microsoft uh, Azure represent today, vast consolidation of physical assets, big data centers. On the other side, small atoms that will have high value and high volatility. I honestly do think that's the way the world is going. So you just need to look at FinTech in London. Lots of small, high value assets. Checkout, for example, where my son works, uh, was valued, I believe, at 40 billion uh, uh, by private investors. It hasn't even gone IPO yet. Uh, and it's got five or 600 people working for it. I mean, that's vast value, uh, but it's a small atom. Uh, it's not running a global infrastructure. So I think the world polarizes. Uh, yes, the Microsofts, the Amazons, and others will represent those big utility platforms of all kinds. Uh, and those will be the basis on which these small, the small atoms can actually achieve scale and scope. Mm -hmm. So it's mutually supportive. And in a not quite a similar vein because they're not necessarily famed for their tech adoption. What about the big banks? Because in, in reinventing capitalism, you say that the Web3 world might lead to their dissipation. I, I really struggle uh, with big banks. Um, I think Lloyd said it would take 27 years to modernize its systems. Uh, well, you, you might know, have net zero by then. Who knows? You know, I won't be around at <laughs> yeah. that time. I've been, I've been uh, a loyal customer of Lloyd's for nearly 60 years. Uh, so yes, I, I think that the complexity of these big banks is just uh, beyond reason. Uh, I think still we have faith in their brand uh, that they will look after our money. Um, and that the smaller guys, the newcomers, the revolutes and others uh, uh, might not be so secure and no, so, uh, not so long lasting. Would I put a million pounds into Revolut? Uh, I'm not sure, I, but I would put it into Lloyd's for safekeeping. So I think they've still got that brand equity, uh, but how long will that last? And, and again, I think banks are essentially deposits, uh, you know, place to deposit money. Uh, and, and there is room for a few global utilities that will provide you with the security and confidence that they'll actually not lose your money. Yeah. Um, well, I think trust is a big part of this, isn't it? Because it's trust. we've got these new companies, like like you say, you could scale at great speed, yeah. but we don't really know who they are, do we? <laughs> Whereas no, we don't. You, you, you sort of know where you stand with a big bank. Yeah, you have to put up with it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, again, let's face it, uh, bank branches are disappearing from the high streets. Uh, I wouldn't know if I had a branch, a, a bank manager. I mean, I'm not an inconsequential investor, but th there's no one in, in Lloyd's Bank who's ever approached me or ever would approach me. Uh, so they're just not fulfilling their duty uh, of, of being a you know, holistic financial services organization. All they are is a big number crunching machine. I have my account there, transactions flow through, good for them. And I <laughs> also put my sort of meager savings in there from time to time. Uh, which they don't even know about, uh, good for them. At least I can, tr as you say, trust them. Uh, but you know, is that a long-term sustainable model in a digital world? I'm not sure that it is. And with cryptocurrency, again, uh, are the banks really going to grab this opportunity or are other people going to actually come in big time? Uh, I, th I, I suspect crypto will be the game changer. It, uh, and by the way, uh, DeFi, Web 3.0, applied to the banks, again, could fundamentally break their monopolies, blockchain particularly. Blockchain actually in, uh, engenders trust. So if you build a model that has at its core the blockchain, 
I think you can actually um, build the levels of trust that the big banks have got today. Mm -hmm. And one last question for you, Roger. Mm. Um, I hate that we have to end these things, but we've got a, an audience of primarily people in financial advice and wealth management who are no doubt looking to invest in the future economy, or the economy of tomorrow. That's where the growth is, right? What advice would you have there? How can people identify, you know, how can fund managers, for instance, identify companies that are built for the future? So a very appropriate uh, question my IFA visits me tomorrow. Uh, what <laughs> am I going to say to him? Uh, I, I, again, as an invest, investor, one has to balance uh, short and long term. Uh, short term, you know, solid uh, dividend producing stocks, all good. Uh, but if you want growth in the long term, you've got to take risk. And I think uh, funds like the ARC, ARC Fund in the US uh, are really interesting to watch because these guys are <laughs> at the edge of risk. Yeah. Uh, short term, a nightmare, highly volatile. Long term, yeah, big killers. So they will multiply by 10 factors of 10. So I think anyone today in wealth management has to to be to to be valuable to their own customers. They've got to recognise, you know, uh, the short term need for income and uh, stability, uh, but balance that with the the long term need for growth. I can't expect Unilever to grow more than two or three percent a year, but I certainly expect uh, checkout to grow by fifty percent a year. Uh, where am I going to put my money? Yeah, <laughs> and actually, one last question: You've got your advisor meeting you tomorrow. Are you a difficult client, Roger? <laughs> Uh, well, actually, I like to think I'm quite an informed client. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the same thing? I don't yeah. know. Uh, and it's actually, it's a, it's uh, he's he's a terrific sounding board for me. So yeah. I can put all my preposterous ideas to him. Uh, and uh, and by the way, I, I I'm a sort of investor in a whole range of assets, uh, global assets. I, I spread my money very br br widely, uh, and he can sort of come back and challenge me. But at least I'm actually quite proactive. Brilliant. That's a, that's a nice endorsement for the industry, I like to think. Um, look, Roger, thank you. That's all we've got time for. Um, but thank you again for joining us. Always great to have you here. And to everyone who's been listening, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of the Wealth Tech Show. And remember to check out our Wealth Tech Hub at New Model Advisor. Um, and that is, of course, that horrible URL that I read out earlier, New Model Advisor forward slash Wealth Tech, but use hyphens for New Model Advisor. Ha! I'm Ian Horn, and I hope you can join us again next week. Bye for now. <laughs>